Now you talk about terror. What about for me? I've been terrorized all my day. All my day. Time and time again, the human rights attorney Nora Erakat writes, we see evidence of the law's assumed insignificance in the dispossession of Palestinians. Great Britain remained committed to establishing a Jewish national homeland in Palestine despite its legal duties as the mandatory power to shepherd local Arab peoples to independence. The Permanent Mandates Commission remained committed to the incorporation of the Balfour Declaration into the Mandate for Palestine in contravention of the Covenant of the League of Nations, which, in discussing the dispossession of the communities formerly belonging to the Turkish Empire, stated that the wishes of these communities must be a primary consideration. The United Nations proposed a partition of Palestine without legal consultation and in disregard of the existing population's well-being and development, which the same covenant had declared to be a sacred trust of civilization. Zionist militias established Israel by force without regard to the partition plan's stipulated borders. The United Nations accepted Israel as a member despite the state's violation of the non-discrimination clauses of the partition plan and of the UN's own condition that Israel permit the return of forcibly displaced Palestinian refugees. The very origins of the Palestinian-Israeli conflict Erekat continues, suggests that it is characterized by outright lawlessness. And yet few conflicts have been as defined by astute attention to law and legal controversy as this one. Do Jews have a right to self-determination in a territory in which they did not reside but settled? Are Palestinians a nation with the right to self-determination, or are they merely a heterogeneous polity of Arabs eligible for minority rights? Did the United Nations have the authority to propose partition in contravention of the will of the local population? Are the West Bank, including East Jerusalem, and the Gaza Strip occupied as a matter of law? That is, are they recognized as such by law? Does Israel have the right in law to self-defense against the Palestinians living in the occupied territories? Do Palestinians have the right to use armed force against Israel? Is the root of Israel's separation barrier built predominantly in the West Bank illegal? Is Israel an apartheid regime? Joining me to discuss these issues examined in her book, Justice for Some, Law and the Question of Palestine, is the human rights attorney and assistant professor at Rutgers University, Nora Erekat. Uh, you begin the book, I think, making a crucial point, and that is that the entire legal system, and this is, predates the establishment of the state of Israel under the British mandate, is grounded in the denial of sovereignty to the Palestinian people. And I, as we said before I went on air, reminded me very much of uh, the construction of the American legal system, another settler colonial project, basing it on Locke's primacy of property. So you, 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 you build a legal system on a distortion. 
Uh, and this, this, this was something that the British imposed. Let's go back and look at that. Absolutely. And so I think that the invocation of Locke is very apt here, specifically as we were discussing earlier, Locke theorizes um, the social contract as was later applied in the United States as a social contract for settlers only through the exclusion of indigenous peoples and their erasure. And here, what you're describing as the perversion and the denial of sovereignty to Palestinians is what I capture as a colonial erasure, right? The erasure of the juridical status of Palestinians as a international people with the right to self-determination. There was never a denial that there were people on these lands, but that there was an outright denial whether these people constituted a political community with the right to exercise self-determination, what we're using interchangeably here with sovereignty, though I would caution that sovereignty has come to take on quite new meaning um, beyond just, you know, statehood and and self-governance. And so, but insofar as we're discussing this particular moment, it's the aftermath of the First World War. And the British have basically promised Palestine to its native uh, to its native peoples and and promised self determination across uh, the former Ottoman territories, what they describe as the Area A mandate. They've also promised Palestine and designated it as a site of Jewish settlement, as captured by the Balfour Declaration, which was approved by British Parliament in 1917. That later becomes the preambular text for the Palestine mandate, which governs. Uh, the regulation of this mandate territory. Now, in so doing, we have to, and this is why I examine the language of the Balfour Declaration. The declaration itself only recognizes Jews as as having a right to self-determination when they um, designate it as a site of settlement and describes and, and, and recognizes the original inhabitants, but only describes them as having a right to civil and religious rights. So they have the right to you know, practice their religion freely and to move about freely, but they do not have a right to political rights. And that's what I capture as, as the colonial erasure. Once the British do that, and now it's incorporated in the Palestine Mandate in 1921, it becomes, I suggest, not just British you know, you know, colonial prerogative as the mandatory power, it now becomes international law and policy by which the entire permanent mandate commission, which is overseeing the, you know, the, the governance of all the mandates. Now, remember, the mandates are set up as being trusteeships that will be shepherded to self-determination. But as you know, Timothy Mitchell points out, this was about the consent of the governed, that self-determination here only meant that the, that the governed decided who would be their mandatory power. But this becomes another way to continue French and British colonial penetration into the Middle East um, and North Africa without necessarily uh, granting independence to these peoples who have to fight for their independence. But even within that construction, they set apart Palestine as a part of international law and policy. They set it apart from the other it class A mandates in saying, unlike those mandates 
that are being shepherded to, to independence, that have a provisional government, that are able to represent themselves. Palestine, because of its designation as a site of Jewish settlement, has to be now um, developed in another way. And, and so they, they, they suppress any form of Palestinian sovereignty and self-determination, even in contravention of the League of Nations um, you, you know, uh, covenant which you know regulates the ma- the the mandatory uh the mandate territories the mandates themselves that says you know for example you cannot contravene the wishes of the original inhabitants well obviously we know that the inhabitants rejected zionism and wanted self determination that there should be some sort of self government but they wouldn't allow representative self-government, because if they did, that would contravene the Balfour Declaration. And now the Balfour Declaration was part of the Palestine Mandate, which was international law. The PMC resolves this in basically saying, why don't we, you know, first prioritize the settlement of of Jewish um, persons, and then we'll move on to resolve the issue of the rights of the original inhabitants. And this, this points out to something interesting, Chris, which is, you know, often I think we give too much credit Right to Britain and and to these this imperial access of of having a plan that they planned that there would be a Jewish state and I don't think so, I don't think so. I think that they wanted to thwart self determination in general and maintain Palestine as a site where they can continually justify their intervention and their colonial penetration in order to basically you know compete with the French um, in, in, in the MENA region, as well as to justify their presence through some sort of colonial benevolence. Um, and, and what crystallizes later is why this become, you know, as you know, the demand, now the Zionist demand for a Jewish state um, is, is not something that they necessarily intended and, and why it becomes a blunder. This becomes a blunderous policy for them um, as we see in the aftermath of the Second World War, when the British leave and they give this to the United Nations and they say, we don't know what to do anymore. We can't resolve this. We've made too many promises, created a bit of a Frankenstein here. Um, but all that to say is that it was through their 30 years of that mandatory authority that they create the conditions that basically, you know, um, make right uh, Zionist militias to then establish a, a, a Jewish state themselves, a Zionist state with a with a solid Jewish demographic uh, majority that is contingent on the removal uh, and dispossession of the original Palestinian people. Well, at the inception, the the Jews in Palestine who were a small minority were essentially seen as colonial administrators. Uh, and during the Arab Revolt, uh, 37, 38, 39, the British were arming the Zionist militias as auxiliary units. You're right, all of it backfired, um, and, uh, but, but from the inception, and this was, I think, the uh, underlying point of the Balfour administration, it was through the Jewish community that essentially they were going to maintain this colony, isn't that correct? 
Yeah, very interesting here. I mean, this is also part of a broader, you know, colonial trope that they wanted to protect the minority Jewish population as a religious population. And it's under this kind of benevolent auspices that they can justify their own intervention, right? But they wanted, to, for example, to maintain um, direct access and, and build a railroad from Haifa to Baghdad as, as, as part of a broader British vision. That this wasn't about creating a homeland for Jews for the British as much as it was about achieving their policy as you're describing. A few things about the 30, the Great Revolt. The Great Revolt is so significant, not only because here the British are arming, you know, the the you know the, the Jewish Yeshuv, the, the Zionists, um, and training them in this moment, leaving arms to them, right? At the same time, Rashid Khalidi points out to us that through the course of the Great Revolt, the British actually end up decimating 10% of the male adult population, either through imprisonment, exile, or, or outright killing. And so this makes the Palestinians, in fact, some 10 years later, when now they're facing off with the Zionist militias um, in, in the falling apart of the partition plan, unable to resist, I think, uh, more forcefully. So that's absolutely um, significant. The second thing I'll say about the Great Revolt is that it changed British policy. That whereas the British refused to re-examine their commitment to Zionism between 1917 and 1936, in the aftermath of the Great Revolt, because they realized that, that they could not resolve this forcefully, they could not partition Palestine, um, as a matter of force, that the Palestinians refused uh, th that outcome, that it would have to be done by force. They actually revised their Zionist policy for the first time when they issue the white paper. And they walk back that policy and now say that the future will be determined by a referendum um, and that there will somehow be an Arab st federal state instead. Obviously, none of this comes to fruition not least of which become uh, because the Second World, World War begins. And I just, as you point out in your book, the Arab revolt was actually quite successful. I think they even occupied, as you say, Jerusalem for five days, huge parts of the country, and the British uh, declared martial law and brought in, what was it, 100,000 or 200,000 British troops. Um, so this was, uh, uh, you know, it, it uh, required draconian British uh, military power, in essence, to to crush uh, these aspirations, and then, as you point out, left the Palestinians weakened. Uh, the you had a Jewish brigade, of course, in World War II, incorporated into the British army, and uh, and then they pushed through the uh, seizure of land, seventy eight percent of land, uh, nineteen forty eight, when they created the state of Israel. I want to, which is an important part. Before of you go there, Chris, I just want to point out this, uh, this point about martial law. It's significant in, in, in three ways, I should say. Number one, the martial law regime that the British apply during the Great Revolt um, in order to basically crush the Palestinian you know, insurgency and uprising is something that they're applying across their colonial geographies and their colonial holdings, whether it be in Malay, in Kenya, in India. This is a form of you know, they're suspending all 
um, civil rights in order to be able to, to exercise whatever they deem necessary for their, for their national interests. And so the colonial legacy, here I say that to just emphasize that as exceptional as as, as exceptional as many aspects of the Palestinian struggle for liberation, you know, are that it's actually quite common and emblematic of a broader, you know, colonial history. The second thing that I want to point out is that upon its establishment, you know, Israel, one of the first acts of the Knesset is to adopt Britain's uh, emergency regime almost verbatim almost verbatim for the purpose of, you know, achieving its settler colonial ambitions of, you know, of course they come, they become sovereign over 78% of Palestinian lands, but those lands still belong to Palestinians. It takes 12 years until 1960 in, you know, four-phase plan where, you know, now the state of Israel, no longer the Zionist militias are now the state forces, are incrementally taking that land through a, a, a regime of immigration law, property law, and emergency rule of which the military law is central as it's applied solely to the Palestinian population that remains, that, you know, eventually become, you know, citizens of the state as well. And then the third thing that I'll say about that martial law is that once they lift the martial law, right, um, uh, in, in, 1960, uh, in 1966, this is precisely what they, now they apply to the Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza to continue that settler colonial expansion. So the legacy is this broad global legacy of, of martial rule in order to achieve their colonial ambitions becomes a central organizing, you know, um, a, a technology of, of Israeli governance in order, you know, to, to fulfill its own settler colonial ambitions, both within what becomes Israel as well as in uh, what we describe as the occupied territories in the West Bank, including East Jerusalem and the Gaza Strip. So there were two key points I picked up from your book. One, this continuum between a legal system set up by the British settler colonial project and the Israeli settler colonial project, really uh, almost seamless, and premised on exactly the same point, that the Palestinians have no sovereignty. The Palestinians as, uh, uh, you know, don't, uh, Golda Meir, I think, said they don't exist as a people. Um, and, and, and so th just the, the same legal tools that the British were using to dispossess and strip Palestinians of basic rights are no different from the tools that Israel uses. Is that correct? I'll modify that slightly. Um, and also, unfortunately, um, you know, Golda Meir says this in an interview with the International Herald Tribune, where she says, you know, it's not as if there was a land with a people that we dispossessed. It was a land without a people for a people without a land. And this is emphasizing that colonial erasure. Meir, Herzl, Wiseman, you know, Rupine, all of these, you know, founding figures, Zionist figures understand full well there are Palestinians, they just do not recognize them as a political community, right? There's this continuing discourse of savagery, savagery, barbarism, lack of civilization, do not know how to rule themselves. You know, it's a very, it's a, it's a colonial project. Zionism is, is very much a settler colonial project, which, which makes this revisionism that we're seeing today, 
right? This, you know, describing it as a national self-determination movement or worse as, as the greatest form of anti-colonial revolt, so laughable because it was so, you know, it was exalted, self-exalted as a colonial project. The other thing I'll just modify slightly is that insofar as the British were concerned, um, it wasn't just that they were targeting Palestinians. They were also, you know, they were also suppressing any form of national self-determination because of their imperial interests. They wanted to stay there. They didn't want to leave. But the infrastructure that they set up for us, this emergency infrastructure in particular, is what um, Zionists adopt in toto, almost verbatim, when the Israel establishes itself. And they do so, you know, whereas when when uh, the British passed it, they, they actually imposed the martial law and the emergency regime on everyone. The Zionist, Jewish Zionists, as well as Palestinians, when Israel adopts it in the Knesset, it's imposed on Palestinians only in, in order to continue now a specific form of dispossession. What the British do is, 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 is uh, you know, engage in immigration, which is, you know, engage in a discriminatory form of immigration that may, you know, just doesn't regulate the immigration of Jewish settlers, and also a land regime where we're seeing a, a, a tremendous sale, um, you know, uh, of lands that's also unregulated, not regulating the market properly, so that Palestinians are are not necessarily stripped forcefully. What they're stripped of is their political right, their political right to represent themselves, their political right to organize, their political right to, to make decisions on what this looks like but not in the same way of once Israel is established. At that point, the law is retooled specifically to transform Palestinian lands into Israel lands. And once in the form of Israel lands, that's just the cover. Because if you say Israel, that means that, oh, everybody who's a citizen of Israel. But in fact, it's a cover to say Jewish national lands in particular, because upon its establishment, in 1915 and 1952, Israel bifurcates Jewish nationality from Israeli citizenship. And this is key. This is key, especially to those who discuss apartheid, because Israel doesn't become an apartheid regime for failing to establish a Palestinian state, right? And truncating uh, Zionist sovereignty within the, you know, across the 1949 armistice lines or what we know as the 1967 lines. Israel is predicated on a discriminatory you know, framework that bifurcates Jewish nationality through which all rights flow, right? This is an extraterritorial right that promises any Jewish person within, outside, you know, who's never even heard of the state, who might be born today, a right to land, to employment, to housing, to education, to governance, in a way that will never become accessible, even to the Palestinian inhabitants that never leave, right? 20% of Israel's population are the Palestinians that stay um, through uh, the, the 1948 war. And so, but even they don't have those same rights. They're only entitled to Israeli citizenship. And there's a two-tiered system, one of, of nationality and citizenship and one of citizenship only. And citizenship only is a form of second-class citizenship or a fifth, uh, a fifth pillar. And so this too is part of a, of a legal edifice that defines the state 
uh, in its establishment. In the book, you talk about the uh, legal recourses that Palestinians, in particular the PLO, use. And what I found interesting is that while they didn't achieve their ultimate objective, they often achieve secondary objectives that benefited the Palestinian people almost by default. Can you explain that? Well, you're leaving it very open-ended because, as, <laughs> as you know, I divide, I, I divide the book into five critical junctures. Yeah. Um, each of those junctures um, is, is, is really catalyzed by some sort of um, violent confrontation that becomes an opportunity to recalibrate the balance of power. And in each of these episodes, that relationship between power and law becomes, you know, formative in, in both defining how we understand the question of what becomes the question of Palestine as, as articulated by the United Nations in 1948, it suddenly becomes a question um, and defines the meaning of law in particular. So how what the Palestinians do and those junctures are, you know, 1917, the aftermath of the First World War, um, 1967 the 1967 war, 1973, the October 1973 war, 1987, the first Palestinian intifada, and 2000, what the second Palestinian intifada, which also um, shapes and defines right ongoing warfare to this day, when Israel shifts from a policy of occupation to explicit warfare against the Palestinians who live under its occupation. So I'm going, I say that all to lay out to the audience that I'll just focus on the juncture in the aftermath of the 1973 war, when I, you know, articulate in the book that this was really the apex of when the Palestinian Liberation Organization uses the law astutely to achieve its, its national ambitions. Now, this is also nuanced because at the at this time in 1973 the PLO as defined by you know its its militia forces who take over the PLO in 1968 right um their goal is full liberation they want to liberate all of palestine right they have no ambitions for a state there's no articulation of that this is a decolonization movement they want to liberate they want to free the land Right. In the aftermath of the 1973 war, and, and specifically we see this very explicitly in, in 74, we might see it earlier, but very explicitly in 74, um, there is now a seed planted that are, you know, envisions the establishment of a truncated, truncated Palestinian state as either, you know, the, the stepping stone of full liberation or the final solution. We don't see that question resolved until. 1988, right, when the Palestinians now enter Oslo. So I'm just setting this up for the audience to be able to explain that even when we say, what do Palestinians want? At this point, there's a lot of nuance. There's an explicit agenda of full liberation, but there's also now, you know, a latent agenda by some elements of the PLO uh, led by Fatah. Uh, and I would say even a, a very conservative element of Fatah, not all of Fatah. Um, at this time. So now what? Okay. So in 74, uh, the Palestinians basically make their first foray into the United Nations. Their objective is actually not to enter the United Nations. They want to enter 
the you know the the Middle East peace process now being shepherded by the Soviet Union, but by primarily the United States. Um, by Nixon, who's both the Secretary of State and the head of of the National Security Council, who, in pursuance of Zionist goals as well as U.S. national interests, disaggregates the Arab-Israeli question or the Arab-Israeli conflict, I should say, into an Egyptian-Israeli track, a Lebanese-Israeli track, a Jordanian-Israeli track, a Syrian-Israeli track, and leaves out the Palestinians altogether. What the PLO really wants is to be, you know, be able to negotiate on behalf of themselves and not by proxy. Failure to be able to incorporate themselves into that negotiating process, now they set their sights on the United Nations. And that's when they enter in 74 to pass resolution 3236 and 3237, which together both affirms their juridical status as a people when it says that the PLO is the sole and legitimate representative of the Palestinian people and not merely a motley crew of refugees in need of humanitarian assistance, and establishes a corrective to Resolution 242, which doubles down on their erasure by describing them as refugees only, and establishes a quid pro quo arrangement whereby Israel will enjoy permanent peace um, in recognition for returning all of the territories. And so that, you know, this is seen as an instrument of defeat. So that's the first kind of what I guess one might describe as the, that's not exactly what they wanted. What they wanted was to enter into the negotiations. This is what they do, which is also very successful. That didn't advance their cause as much. And by 70, uh, in the summer of 75, they decided um, that they wanted to expel Israel from the United Nations in the same way that um, South, you know, the, 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 the non-aligned movement had expelled South Africa and unseated it from the United Nations. But in their effort to do so, they were primarily blocked by Egypt under the governance of um, leadership of Anwar Sadat, who saw that the only pathway forward was through some sort of U.S. alliance um, in order to get the, you know, the Sinai back, to recoup the Sinai, and wanted to continue negotiations with Israel. So actually stymied uh, this initiative to unseat uh, Israel from the United Nations. Instead, what the Palestinians do in the summer of 75 at the International Women's Conference, at the Organization of um, Islamic Cooperation, at the Non-Aligned Movement, amongst uh, the Organization of African you know, Union, is basically a condemnation of Zionism as a form of racism and racial discrimination. That wasn't the primary goal, but that was the consensus. So they come back to the General Assembly and now work to create one of the most significant, I think, legal achievements when they amend the decade against racism that was targeting apartheid in Namibia and South Africa to also include a condemnation of Zionism. And we get resolution 3379 that declares that Zionism is a form of racism and racial discrimination that would only be rescinded by the PLO itself in 1991. And so I would say that these are, you know, just a few examples of of what I, I think I'm responding to your question of of perhaps what uh, Palestinians had sought and what they do instead using these legal maneuvers. And obviously, all of all of this entry in, uh, of foray is also um, restricting the Palestinians themselves. But it's a restriction that they, they they welcome in order to advance their other goals. Let's talk about Oslo. You open that chapter quoting uh, Edward Said, uh, who calls it a Palestinian Versailles. And it 
really, uh, you I think, make a very persuasive argument that it destroys the PLO as an effective resistance organization. You know, when I when I started this chapter, I really was starting it as and interested in it um, as a legal scholar. And I thought to myself, one of the offerings that I can make is to explain to a you know a non-specialist what did Oslo do in order to you know permanently subjugate Palestinians? Because that's what it is. Oslo is a sovereignty trap. It doesn't promise. There's never even a mention of the Palestinian state. None of its negotiating terms promises an eventual outcome of a Palestinian state, right? Palestinians don't get anything. And so my, you know, I wanted to explain that, you know, what, how, how does Israel, you know, nego- you know, create this new administration under Oslo for, to regulate access to water, access to land, access to movement? Like, how does Oslo set up, you know, all of these strictures? But when I read, when I read the, the, the actual, you know, documents, the, um, the Declaration of Principles, also known as Oslo 1, when you read Oslo 2 that sets up this jurisdictional regime of area A, B, and C, when you read, you know, um, Y and Taba and so on, it's so obvious how Palestinians are subjugated that I thought to myself, well, you don't need to be a legal expert to, to, to have this takeaway. You just need to be literate. So instead, I decide to answer a question I don't know the answer to yet, which is why? Why would the PLO enter into something so obviously devastating and self-defeating? And in trying to answer that question, what becomes, you know, you know, clearer to me anyway, is that this really is about salvaging the PLO. That that's what was being done. The PLO, after its um, expulsion from Lebanon in 1982 and removal to Tunisia, is now no longer has a solid base where it almost, you know, oversees, um, you know, one would say the infrastructure of a Paris state with, uh, you know, a significant refugee population within Lebanon that constitutes an entire, you know, institution of, of representation and and services and functioning and and also doesn't have the grounds for cross-border attacks, you know, that's a significant blow. By 1987, they continue to weaken, not, you know, not least because of the emergence of opposition, like Hamas, that now becomes even more popular than um, the PLO struggle, as well as the fact that, you know, now there's an organic movement within, you know, the West Bank in Gaza that's that's le- leading a, an intifada an uprising, so that the center of gravity shifts from the Palestinian diaspora to Palestinian lands themselves. And this is undermining the PLO's authority, together with the fact now, by the time Arafat, you know, throws his hat in and supports, you know, Saddam Hussein's occupation of Kuwait, which in retribution, right, Gulf states, uh, you know, Kuwait, Number one, basically says Palestinians out. And now there's a whole loss of remittances to the Palestinians, as well as the fact that anybody that wants to support Palestine is going to support opposition and not the PLO itself. 
So all of these things come together to basically shape a moment where the PLO is at, at, at the edge of irrelevance, at the edge of irrelevance. And entering into the negotiations, they had a very adept team at Madrid and Washington that saw the writing on the wall. Haider Abdel Shafi, Reja Shahada are very clear in their legal analysis in warning that Israel is basically, you know, offering the same thing that was offered in the 1978 Middle East peace process in the negotiation between Sadat and Begin leading up to the 1979 permanent Egyptian-Israeli peace, which is an autonomy framework. That's all they're offering. They offered the same thing in 78. The only difference now when they're offering it in the lead up to the you know adoption of the Declaration of Principles is that they're saying that Palestinians will not only be able to govern themselves on these different plot of lands, but can also govern certain plots of lands, but only, only there. They still won't have, they still won't be able to exercise jurisdiction. And instead of, uh, you know, electing a local government to do it, they'll allow the PLO to do it. Those are literally the only differences between 78 and what we ultimately see in 93. And even, you know, the, in, in, I interviewed, you know, one of the interesting things about doing this work, um, Chris, and this research is that the legal literature is dominated um, by Israeli scholars, especially on these questions. So part of the work that I was doing was also helping to create a Palestinian archive um, to, to, to advance these legal arguments. And, and doing that meant that I interviewed the interlocutors that were there. I interviewed the negotiators themselves. So Camille Mansour, who was there um, and was a negotiator and is a legal scholar, it's his words where he you know, illuminates that if you lose Palestinian representation, you've lost, the, you know, we go back to being just no people anymore. We had to save the PLO in order to save our status as a juridical people. But in exchange for that recognition, we basically relinquished Palestine. You know, the, the rescindment of the 1975 resolution declaring Zionism as a form of racism is, is emblematic. The amendment of the charter that says that Palestinians will no longer resort to armed force when Israel is not making similar concessions, it doesn't say we're not resorting to armed force. The recognition of Israel. Palestinians recognize Israel. There's no mutual recognition of a Palestine. And so Palestinians basically cede and surrender what should have remained on the table as part of their negotiating leverage as a condition for entering into Oslo, which becomes the trap that they remained frankly, ensconed within, although we obviously see many, many cracks and Oslo has been dead, even though many have tried to keep it up on stilts. But that's what that's what's happening. That's what we're, you know, people are celebrating in 1993, even though, you know, Edward Said, um, Abdel Shafi, Shahade, and many others recognize as an instrument of defeat, this Palestine, it's done. Palestine has been lost. That obviously be in even Hanan Ashra, Dr. Hanan Ashrawi, who recognizes you know what a loss this is, also agrees that it was it was still worthwhile because they didn't want to relinquish you know the status of the PLO. And so, you know, people are not stupid. This was a very, you know, this was this was a very logical decision. The PNC approves Oslo. 
approves the DOP. So this is also not, you know, necessarily just betrayal by the PLO, even though it is betrayal by the negotiating team in Oslo, which was the back channel secret negotiation that the negotiators in Washington had no idea about, right? Uh, but just adding nuance here that there was still, there was a lot, you know, the PLO in its own documentation says that they entered into Oslo and, and uh, Dr. Nabil Shah, who's also one of my interlocutors, says, we knew it was bad, but we entered on good faith. Um, and that faith obviously didn't bear out for them. It wasn't, um, it, it didn't do what they what they had hoped. I mean, there was a lot of corruption. I was in Gaza after Oslo, and the PLO leadership were importing their duty-free Mercedes and building villas. Um, as you point out in the book, the PA sends most, spends most of its budget on internal security functioning, in essence, as a colonial police force. Uh, uh, you know, they, the, the hierarchy that is willing to do that dirty work can live very well. Um, but we've now reached a point, and of course, in the elections in 2006, the, the PA lost. I mean, Hamas won, even in the West Bank. So uh, in many ways, it's, I don't know if you would agree, it's kind of nullified itself uh, as, as uh, you know, a credible movement on behalf of the Palestinian people at this point. Would you agree? 100%. I think that this is consensus amongst Palestinians, which is what's so troubling, that the PA even if, even according to Oslo, the PA is only meant to be an administrative body. It should deliver mail. It should pick up the trash. Right. It should, you know, it should, you know, complete administrative functions. It was never appointed to lead the Palestinian liberation movement, which was, should have remained within the purview of the PLO. But we see a collapse of the PA in the PLO in a way that blurs these lines. So that, that on the on the first hand, and and then instead, what we see, you know, this it was supposed to have a temporary function until we moved into permanent status, you know, negotiations and the establishment of of the Palestinian state. That was never there's never a mention of the Palestinian state, Chris. There's not there's not even even the negotiators themselves, Itzhak Rabin, who is hailed um, as the peacemaker and assassinated for his you know willingness to enter into Oslo by uh, an Israeli settler, even he says there will never be a Palestinian state, right? So it should have only been, this, this, this temporary arrangement should have only lasted for five years, let alone now we're, we're, you know, we're above three decades. And the PA has been a very, very significant instrument, part and parcel, of Israel's occupation regime. It is doing the work on behalf of Israel. It is coordinating security with Israel. It is arresting Palestinians. It is providing intelligence on where Palestinians are. It is actually entering into Palestinian public squares to beat Palestinians, to suppress their protests even now against the genocide in Gaza. I mean, just think, just think, the fact that the public sector is bloated, but the primary part of the uh, of the you know the primary the Palestinian public sector is the security sector, and that security sector is basically policing Palestinians to protect Israel Israel's settlement enterprises. I had said before, you know, and I'm saying now again, that 
In contrast, there's no dedication, for example, to invest in the agricultural sector. Had the PA, now collapsed with the PLO, invested in an agricultural sector, it might have been able to create you know, and cultivate an economy that can engage in boycott of Israeli goods even, rather than be flooded with Israeli goods into the market. But this also goes hand in hand with the fact that the, the PLO has never even endorsed boycott. They're still committed to, you know, plan, even if it's a state-led, right? A truncated Palestinian state to that structure um, at the expense of liberation. And why at the expense of liberation? Because this is not inclusive of all Palestinians. It's not inclusive of the Palestinian refugees. It's certainly not inclusive of the Palestinians who are citizens of Israel. So, you know, and, and, and it doesn't have a vision of how is it that Palestinians are going to be free from Israeli dominance as opposed to what they're banking on, which is an autonomy arrangement whereby they will forever receive, you know, certain incremental privileges from Israel and its patron, the United States, in exchange for being good natives. And this is this is the trap that we remain in. And it puts Palestinians, you know, it makes our struggles so much harder. And and why, you know, many people are asking, how is how is Gaza, you know, and the West Bank too. I mean, obviously the West Bank is being subject to to untold and unprecedented violence from the beginning of this year, but especially um, since early October. But Palestinians are not even able to mount um, a, a significant and a robust resistance to protect themselves because not only are they being attacked by, by Israel um, and their you know, settler vigilantes who are being armed, um, but they're also being attacked and policed by the Palestinian um, you know, authority. You compare the PLO to the Namibians, and you make some, I think, really important points um, about how how they were far more astute. They rejected the South African peace process, an alternative. SWAPO refused to enter South Africa's exclusive sphere of influence and maintain an adversarial position, unlike the PLO, which has committed to U.S. mediated bilateral talks for 25 years, uh, SWAPO never relinquished its right to the use of force, and it never ceased its armed struggle. Talk about the difference, because they were far more successful. And then, of course, you had Cuban troops stationed in Angola. You know, I, I bring up Namibia in the conclusion, because there is, especially in the realm of Palestine, and we see this now because of the South Africa application of the ICJ, there is a way because of, you know, the failure of politics, really, and a failure of a Palestinian leadership to articulate some sort of a political program and a resistance vision, right? What And resistance here, I mean robustly, like diplomatic resistance, economic resistance, popular resistance, cultural resistance, de you know, delegitimizing a Zionist settler colonial project. Nothing. There's nothing. And in the absence of that, um, unfortunately, rights, human rights and rights-based programs have taken up an inordinate amount of space in a way that even supplants the language of politics, that now Palestinian politics are hollowed out instead with principles of law, which is, 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 is detrimental, is detrimental because the law is only a tool, right? 
that same very same law, like human rights law, that Palestinians use to assert, you know, their right to family and their right to to to, to not be harmed. Settlers in the West Bank are invoking that same body of law to say that it's their human right um, to to maintain these lands and and to be protected and and to be free of state Israeli state violence. I mean, the law will set up a battleground only. But that can only be resolved through politics. And so I bring, I, I bring that to the fore to say, because so many people bring up Namibia as an example of a very astute use of the law, right? And here it is, Namibia waged a multi-year legal battle, right? Where they incrementally scaffolded a legal argument in, at the ICJ in order to demonstrate, you know, firstly and foremostly the illegitimacy of South Africa as a mandatory power and a governing power in Namibia and South Africa, right? And then scaffolding on top of that other rights of their right um, to self-determination and so on and so forth. But it's not because of this robust, you know, jurisprudence that the Namibians ultimately gain independence. That's necessary. That was, you know, that was strategic. That helped build a language to use. It helped cultivate, you know, international support. But ultimately, it wasn't a legal decision. South Africans don't leave Namibia because the court said so. They could care less. Ultimately, why they leave um, is because you have Cuban forces um, who are fighting alongside, um, who, who are in Angola, that the U.S. wants out of Angola. This becomes a proxy war for the U.S. And, Q- uh, and the Soviet Union and Cuba being involved. And part of that negotiation of uh, withdrawal includes withdrawal from Namibia. So there are other things happening where this influences the United States and shifts its position on apartheid as well. But the Namibians, as you point out, and as I point out in the book, right, are also very astute. They never enter into uh, South African sphere of influence. They're offered the same thing that Palestinians are offered in the form of, you know, black homelands and autonomous governance. They reject that. They never, they never rescind their right and to use armed force which, you know, is enshrined as a result of the non-aligned movement, enshrined as a right for people living under alien occupation, racism, and domination, right? So that that matters too. Now, I I say all that to say, to to the credit of, of the Palestinians, that they don't, this environment in which Namibia is maneuvering, or Namibians are maneuvering, excuse me, um, doesn't exist by the time the Palestinians are entering into Oslo. In fact, we're seeing Namibian and South African independence. Mandela has been released. We're seeing the fall of apartheid. We see the fall of, of, of the Soviet Union. We see the emergence of a unipolar world. So these kind of, this balance of power that really did enable um, a different kind of liberation struggle for Namibians is not available to the Palestinians at the time. Right. And so we can we can sit here retrospectively and say, well, nothing could have been worse than what they've done now. But all of this is conjecture. Obviously, I'm less concerned 
about the trap that Palestinians enter into based on this balance of power, based on you know the political considerations. I'm more concerned that they haven't shifted course and policy when it was clear. If you didn't know the day of, like Abdi Shafi and Saeed and others, you certainly knew by 2000 when the Camp David, you know, agreement collapses. Now it's over. Anything after then Arafat is besieged and and killed. That's it. There's no excuse. I mean, I have, you know, I because I I, I want to give some benefit of the doubt that, you know, they thought they couldn't get anything better. Fine. But by 2000, you knew that this this was this was a dead end. So there is no there's absolutely no explanation why Palestinians would stay in that arrangement since 2000 through 2023, um, you know, a quarter of a century, knowing full well there's no way out. Well, the Pal- Palestinian street didn't. I mean, the, the average Palestinian has walked away from it. They walked away absolutely. from it a long time and, ago. And, cre- and that, that, you know, even in this moment, the Palestinian liberation struggle is not being led by an official Palestinian leadership which makes this moment even more profound, right? That we are um, Palestinian diaspora, Palestinians on the ground. Everybody has been coordinating and working without a centralized governance system, certainly without any means and funding, and yet has been able to mobilize without, you know, um, you know, de- in a decentralized fashion. The uh, Boycott National Committee establishes itself in 2005, launches an international boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement. This is complete. This is civil society. It has nothing to do with the Palestinian leadership. The way that Palestinians bring back a condemnation of Zionism, which we see first in, in the Durban conference um, in 2001, right? The review conference of the decade against racism happens in Durban, South Africa in 2001, where Palestinians raise the banner and say Israel is an apartheid regime and Zionism is racism once again. Palestinians have never relinquished that front. And we even see it in the realm of knowledge production, where you know scholars have you know, reconstructed very robustly, not only making clear that Israel is a, you know, a settler colonial project, but that there's an entire realm of Palestinian indigenous studies, of tradition, of economy, of belonging, of, of you know, family, of em- embroidery, you know, all sorts of tradition, of land use, of sea technology that could be studied, which brings us into 2024. The reason we remain alive as a people is because the people have insisted that we are here. I want to close by talking about the resistance. It's more than 100 days of saturation, bombing of Gaza, destruction of every form of infrastructure that can sustain existence from wells to hospitals to bakeries to schools. Horrific numbers of dead. I was in Sarajevo during the war, which was awful, three to 400 shells a day four to five dead a day, two dozen wounded a day. I only say that as a comparison to Gaza where hundreds of people are being wounded and killed a day just to point out the scale. And yet, uh, U.S. intelligence 
estimates that only 20 to 30 percent of resistance or fighters, Hamas fighters, have been killed. It's becoming clear uh, that if Israel and does not achieve its goal, which I don't see how it will, of eradicating Hamas, and Hamas and the resistance survives, which I feel it will, uh, then in any way the, Pal- the Palestinians win. Um, and however horrific Gaza becomes, uh, other than the Yemenis, the Houthis, uh, nobody is intervening to halt this genocide, despite all the legal bodies we have at the UN and everywhere else. But, but talk about the resistance and whether I know how I knew one of the founders of Hamas, Abdel Aziz Rantisi was in his house with him and his family. His wife was just killed on October 19th. Um, uh, and not, by the way, the demonized image of a leader of Hamas. He was a pediatrician, highly educated, uh, graduated first in his class from the University of Alexandria, a very soft-spoken, brilliant figure, assassinated in 2004, along with one of his sons. Um, let's talk about the resistance. Um, and so whether you embrace the ideology of Hamas or not, for me, is irrelevant. But I, I think it's been amazingly successful. Well, I want to nuance this in many ways, right? I want to nuance this, um, you know, by um, having a a lot of mixed feelings uh, uh, about strategy and moving forward. And I want to emphasize here, you know, I think, and I understand, I understand this, you know, idea of that if, if they're not defeated, they win, which is a tenet of, you know, asymmetric warfare and guerrilla combat. But I really, I, I can't do that with ease, given the magnitude of loss and given just how painful it's been. Um, I, you know, images that I saw last night are still ravaging me inside of what are we going to tell these kids yeah. who have suffered so much? 355,000 children because of dehydration are at risk of permanent cognitive underdevelopment and stunting, right? So it's hard for me, Chris, as much as I'm, you know, I, if they're not defeated, obviously I don't want, you know, I, I don't see a, de- I don't, I don't want them to be defeated. And what people don't understand when they, when they say that is because surrender doesn't bring us back to an ordinary life which is normally what war looks like. You fight, you fight, you fight, you fight. And then one one party surrenders because then you just go back to ordinary life. Palestinians don't go back to an ordinary life. And so surrender is not an option, right? And at the same time, I wouldn't, I, I want to take time to mourn. Palestinians have not had time to mourn. There is such deep devastation that's generational. That's trauma. That's traumatic. That's social. That's political. That I want to honor and hold um, here, and it's very painful. It's just very, very painful. Um, and and I don't know what we do. I don't know what we do because we also even not only are we holding on to that pain, but now we have in Israel a society that is not just you know quasi okay with an apartheid racist regime right they have literally become avid supporters of genocide as a matter of rights 
They are fascists. Society, media, the, the children are taunting their elders, their principal, for expressing empathy for Palestinians. So I also, you know, for me, I pause to say, what is what is the victory here? When now we have to deal with a society that, you know, what is, what is the exit plan? How do you defeat fascism in a world where not only where, where it's being nurtured by Germany and the United States and Britain and Canada, right? Who are saying they're applauding them. And so where is the accountability here? So I, I just countenance the language of victory, to be honest. And I know that puts me at odds and probably deflates a lot of people who want to hear something else. And I just want to ground this in, in something else of, of what it means that Israel cannot decimate Hamas military. They cannot. There is no military solution. There is no military solution. They cannot decimate Hamas. They haven't. Hamas is still firing rockets from the middle of Gaza City. As you point out, they've not even decimated, you know, you know, half of their 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 militants in in the Gaza Strip. They've not turned the Palestinians against Hamas, which was part of their military objective. If anything, they've made Hamas more popular and robust, not only amongst Palestinians across the Arab world and the world in general, right? And they're not any closer um, to returning to retrieving their captive, uh, you know, their captive military personnel or rescuing their civilian hostages, which they were only able to retrieve and, and return through diplomatic negotiations. So one has to ask, how can you justify the 11th most significant military in the world? You know, you trust by U.S. intelligence with advanced weapons technology that has had no red lines for over 100 days that has not even come close to achieving any of its military objectives, but has certainly destroyed Palestinian life, conditions of life that's promising devastation into the future. We have to agree that anybody who's now supporting this is outright supporting a terroristic program that's basically you know, targeting Palestinian civilians, as put by Professor Shirin uh, Say'eli. Palestinian civilians are clearly the military objectives. Hamas is the collateral damage. So I think that we we have to use this to agree that there is no way out, but that the road ahead is what we what we absolutely you know need to keep our eyes on. For me, um, victory victory is liberation. Victory is a world where Palestinians Palestinians um, are recognized as having human life that is sacred and worthy of protection and deserving of self-defense, which Palestinians have asserted over and over and refused to relinquish. I cannot believe this is in controversy. And so insofar as, you know, the cessation of, for me, first and foremost, the cessation of hostilities is necessary just to end the genocide. And then insofar as it demonstrates, you know, there's no military solution and exposes that Zionism is predicated, right, on, on just a, a genocidal program that's an ongoing Nakba in their own words. Avi Dichter said it clearly. This is Gaza, Gaza Nakba 2023. 
they've equated their peace and security to, to, to genocide and ethnic cleansing. Insofar as it illuminates that in order to get us to the threshold that we, you know, that it's not controversial, that it's not controversial, that Palestinians deserve life. Thank you. That was Nora Erekat, human rights attorney and assistant professor at Rutgers University. I want to thank the Real News Network and its production team, Cameron Granadino, Adam Coley, David Hebden, and Kayla Rivera. You can find me at chrishedges.substack.com. Thank you.